Okay, if you want to join us in 1 John chapter 3, we are plugging along through this book. Our plan is next week to get to halfway point of 1 John, and then maybe do a little bit of a review for us, along with communion and the potlucks. So we're going to go through verses 1 to 10 this morning, Lord willing. 1 John 3, verses 1 to 10. And the title of our lesson, you see it on the screen there, is Being Children of God. We're going to look at how important that is and the significance of that. Before we do so, have you ever heard the phrase, the apple does not fall far from the tree? You're nodding at somebody. Does somebody know what that means? Can someone tell me what they think that means? What's that? Not literally. What does the phrase mean? Does someone know? You're just like your parent, exactly. The apple does not fall far from the tree. So my follow-up question, have you ever found yourself starting to act like your parents? I think every child thinks they're going to be different than their parents, right? For whatever reason. They think, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm not going to turn into my mom or my dad. Um, I found a few common sayings that I'd like to share with you this morning, if I can find these things. Maybe you guys will relate to these things that our parents said, and maybe you found yourself saying as well. There's four categories. The first one is the illogical. Don't look at me with those eyes. <laughs> if you keep making that face, it'll freeze that way. If you want to act like a child, I'll treat you like one. Quiet down. I can't even hear myself think. One day you'll thank me. This is a good one. Children are to be seen but not heard. <laughs> yeah, right. And the last one, because I said so, that's why. Then there's the logical. As long as you're under my roof, you'll live by my rules, right? Here's another one. The Lord gave you a brain. Use it. Ask a stupid question, get a stupid answer, right? That's, that's very blunt. Here's the sarcastic ones. This list is pretty good. Are your legs broken? I've said that one. How about this one? This is classic. If all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you... I mean, come on. How about this one? Shut the door. Were you born in a barn? Your room looks like a cyclone ran through it. <laughs> That's true. Talking to you is like talking to a brick wall. Yes, that's very true. Someone better be bleeding. Thanks, Mom. Where are your manners? Were you raised by wolves? And then we have the threatening ones. How about these? I'm not asking, I'm telling. That's classic. When you have kids, I hope they're just like you, right? I hope you get exactly what you are to me. Don't you use that tone with me, mister. Here's a classic one. This one I heard all the time. Stop crying. Can someone finish this? Or I'll... So classic. Every parent heard that one, and every parent uses that one. And I've already started to use it, so... How about this one? You better wipe that look off your face. Don't make me tell you again, or I'll turn this car around. We will not go where we had planned to go. So those are a couple phrases that our parents have used, grandparents have used, and now we probably find ourselves using as well. I want to share with you a couple things that I, my dad and mom have done. And I, I have to preface this by saying I love my mom and dad. They are wonderful people. These are just a few things that my dad and mom have been, and I thought I would avoid. My dad is a creature of habit. He has the same morning routine. He eats the same thing for breakfast. When he goes out to a restaurant, it's the exact same thing every time he goes. 
And for a while, I was like, Dad, mix it up, you know, live life, spice it up a little bit. And now I find myself in that exact same category. I go to the restaurant, and the, they know me. They go, the usual? And I'm like, yes, I want the usual. Um, I also find that, I don't know if you guys do this, like I have like five or six pairs of jeans, and guess how many I wear? <clears throat> One. Because they're the best. They're the most comfortable, so I just wear the same pair of jeans, and I do wash them, but over and over and over. Because I'm a creature like habit, like my dad, I've, I've started to learn uh, how to do the same things over and over and over. So uh, my dad also is very into Sunday afternoon naps. Anyone else? Sunday afternoon naps? For a while, I hated that about my dad because, you know, you'd sit down to watch the game and he'd have the game on at the perfect sleeping level and you couldn't turn it up or down and couldn't change the channel because my dad was a very light sleeper. And if you change the channel, he would know. So you just had to sit there while he was dead, dead asleep and just watch whatever he was watching. And I sort of hated that, but... I love Sunday naps now. <laughs> I don't sleep in the chair like my dad does. I generally go right into bed and I sleep, but I'm also out cold and I'm a very light sleeper. So if Janine comes in to like throw a pair of socks in the hamper, I'll be like, what was that? What was that? What are you doing? Why are you bothering me? Just like my dad. And then I caught myself doing this one the other day. My dad had these discipline tactics. Maybe you guys have your own. My dad didn't always spank us. Sometimes he did. But one, one thing he learned is how to just get our attention by saying this to us, sit on the couch and don't move until I tell you to get up. And I hated that one because it was countless. I mean, there was no end in sight. So sometimes we'd sit there and dad would forget and I'd be like, dad, can I get up now? No, wait till I tell you. I did this the other day to Haddon. Haddon completely disobeyed me and I said, Haddon, I want you to sit on the couch until I get you. And it's like, as I was saying the phrase, I caught myself and I'm like, oh, dad, turned right into him but it works. It's really, it's really a good one. And then my mom. My mom has her own things that I, too, have started to follow. My mom is very bad with names, and forgive her if you tell her your name and she forgets. She's just that way. My mom will say, like, hey, you know, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Thelma or whatever it was said something today, and I want to remember that. I'm like, mom, who's Thelma? And she goes, Thelma, you know Thelma. I'm like, she describes her, and I'm like, mom, that's Catherine. That's not Thelma. My mom is just really bad with names, and I have inherited this trait. So unfortunately, I have, to, I have to hear your name several times before it's implanted. My mom also did this growing up. She would like to take common, popular songs and change the lyrics to them. I hated that. I hated that because she ruined the song for us. I do this all the time now. My, my sons and my daughters like to watch you know, the Wiggles or the popular cartoons, and I see it and I hear it enough that I just start to change the lyrics and sing it along with it. And my son's like, come on, Dad, that's not what it says. And then the last one for my mom. My mom has a very loud, carrying voice. In fact, I probably don't even need a microphone here because my voice is the same. I was in the restaurant the other day and um, talking at a normal level, which is what I thought, and someone actually came over to me and said, would you keep it down? We're trying to eat over there. And I'm like, I'm just talking. But apparently I had one of those voices. They were hearing every single word like I was talking to them. The apple does not fall far from the tree, does it? Well, for your parents, you may love or, or not like that. But for God, that is a good thing. If the apple does not fall from, from the tree, that is a good thing. And we're going to discuss that today. As our title says, being children of God. So go to 1 John 3 if you're not there yet, and let's look at the first 10 verses. Listen to how John opens this part here. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called 
children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's the passage we're going to look at today. We have three goals, okay, three goals once again I, I hope to put forward this morning. Goal number one is to look at our Father's love and to understand the advantages of being a child of God because they're numerous. We're going to look at the advantages of being God's child. Number two is to find great joy from what awaits those who are God's children and follow Christ, and then to use that joy as a motivation to purify ourselves in preparation for that coming day. And then goal number three is to know whether our true father is God or, as the passage says, the devil, by the evidence and practices of our lives, and then to either continue serving the good father or to come to him for the first time in order to be released from the devil's bondage of abuse. Those are our goals today. Uh, Parents, we all have parents, right? Maybe you have your parents still. Maybe you don't have them any longer, but we've all had some semblance of parents growing up. I was blessed to have very good parents, fortunately. I was. But I know many cannot say that, and that's a sad thing. That's a shame. So I I thought about this. Did God grant people like me better love because I had good parents versus those who did not have good parents? Perhaps. Maybe he did. But again, if our perspective can be reformed today, I hope we can see this, that if we have God as our heavenly Father, we have everything we need. In fact, if you only have a Heavenly Father, maybe it is an advantage because then you have to know what it's like to depend entirely upon Him. And that's a good thing. You have to have your full weight upon God. And I want to look at the advantages to being God's children today because they're numerous. And I've come up with what I believe are five really big ones. Okay, But I know you could probably come up with way more than this. But look at the first verse of 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I want us to see, first and foremost, that being God's children is a privilege. It's a true, true privilege. So what do we gain by being children of God? Obviously, the answer to that is God's love, right? That's what we gain from being God's children. But the question is, how does that love manifest itself practically in our lives as being his children. The first one I came up with was was this, protection and provisions. God never neglects our needs, does he? Never. Consider that he never neglects our needs. 
It says in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 33, in fact, I want you to write that down, along with protection and provisions. Matthew 6, verses 25 to 33, it says God even takes care of the birds. I don't know if you think about the birds throughout the week. I don't, unless, you know, one does something to my car. Um, I don't think about the birds, but God does. God thinks about the birds, and he takes care of the birds. And he's not saying that so you just know a doctrinal point that God cares for the birds. He's saying you are so much more valuable than the birds. If I take care of the birds faithfully and constantly, imagine what I do for my own children. Everything that you and I need, both physically and more important, spiritually, are given to us by God in perfect faithfulness according to God's steadfast love. In other words, we have 24-7 care, even when we're asleep, especially when we're hurting. God is there watching over us, giving us what we need. And that's a wonderful thing to know because we're his children. I look out for my own children's needs. I look out for what they need and what will help them. I think about that a lot, but I don't do it as good as God does. God even takes care of my own children. And that's a good thing to know. In fact, we take so much of that for granted. We're going to have next week this thing called a thankful praise potluck, and we're going to try to thank the Lord for a lot of things. But it's not going to be even close to what he actually does for us, is it? Because God does so much behind the scenes. Faithfully, constantly, perfectly providing for us and protecting us. And that's a good thing, isn't it? God has all power and all authority, and he can take care of you and I. And he does. The next thing he does is teaching. It says in John, I want you to write this one down too, John 10, verses 14 to 16, it calls Jesus the good shepherd. God invests in us. He doesn't leave our maturity process up to anybody else. He has a very hands-on love for us. You know, in the day and age we live in, it's often, whether this is right or wrong, I don't know, but we love to take our children and hand them off to the teachers, right? That's their job. They do that. I'm the parent. I set disciplines and standards, but the teachers teach. And we hand them off to the teachers and say, do your job. Well, that's fine. But God takes a very hands-on approach with our teaching. He is the one who guides and shepherds and directs us through the Holy Spirit so that he can know we are getting truth. Because if you hand your children off to other people, you may not know that, right? You may not have full confidence that they're getting exactly what you think they should. So God takes a very hands-on approach with teaching and guiding and giving us the wisdom that we need. And isn't that a good thing? He does it directly through the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just say, I gave you a pastor. Whatever he says, just do it. No, he says, the pastor better be laying before you what I have given to him. And hopefully I am. So God is teaching us very personally and directly. The next thing he's doing, which often doesn't look like love, but it is, is discipline. He also takes a very hands-on approach with discipline. God doesn't let us misstep without discipline and correction. Because if we did, we would falter and we would make ruin of our faith. And he knows that. So when we misstep, God is there with a spiritual rod to say that's wrong. You can't do that anymore. And therefore, if you and I end up in destruction, it's not, it's not God's fault. God is not to be blamed because he is very hands-on with his discipline. If you're wrong and you're God's child, you're going to know about it. God makes it very, very clear when you misstep. He's never lazy. He's never neglectful. 
and helping us grow and mature because he's willing to give the hard love that leads to life. Do you know that about your God? He's willing to give even the hard love to you because he knows that hard love leads to life. God is very hands-on with his discipline. It says in the scripture in the New Testament, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Even those who aren't yet his children, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants you to come to the truth and come to the faith. He wants to give you the hard love if necessary to keep you on the straight and narrow that leads to life. So God disciplines us, and that hurts, right? When, it, when, when life is hurting and, and trials and, and stuff like that comes into your life, you're not thanking and praising God a lot. It's generally, God, remove this from my life. It hurts. I don't want it. But if God took all discipline out of our lives, where would we be? Where? I know where I would be. Actually, it's a scary, it's a scary thing to think of. But I can imagine where it would be without God's discipline. But he does give it. The fourth thing is he gives us availability and understanding. Because of Christ's sacrifice here on this earth, on the cross, and God being so closely connected to Jesus Christ, God can do two very profound things for us. Number one, he can always be available for our needs. 100% of the time, 24-7, God is always available. You ever went to God in the middle of the night? He's there. He's listening. In fact, he's anxious to hear from his children. 24-7, always available for our needs. I want you to write this passage down. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. There's another thing that, Je- that God does because of Jesus Christ. Number two, along with being available, he can say to us, I know, child, I've been there. I can help you. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus went there first. If you're suffering and you're in need and you're struggling with something, Jesus knows what that's like. Isn't that a good thing to know? He can relate. That's what we call empathy. Jesus can say, I have been there. And God himself can say, I have been there because my son was there. And I know what that is like. Isn't that a good thing to know? That's actually what we call fellowship. That's what the word fellowship actually means when someone can say to you, I too have been there. I know what that's like. I know what that struggle is. I can help you. And God can say that to every single one of us, no matter what it is. And I know each, and each of us have our different struggles. Each of us have our different pains in this life. But God can say to every single one of us, I was there. I know what that's like. I know how hurting you are right now, and I can help you. And we're going through these very fastly. Hopefully, hopefully you can look at these scripture passages later and come to some more thoughts. But the fifth thing I thought of that God does, and this is a good thing too, is he bestows gifts upon us. I want you to write down 2 Peter, verse, uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 4, talking about what God gives us. God bestows gifts on us. You know what it's like when you spoil someone or someone spoils you, even though that's probably not a great term to use? You know what that means, right? When someone spoils you, they lavish gifts upon you that you probably don't deserve. And that's a good thing, generally. And when it's done in the proper way. Well, God does this too. I don't know if I would use the word spoil, but we're going to use it because we know what it means. God spoils us, but when he does so, it's with much better things than what the world offers us. When God spoils his children, it's with mercy and grace and eternal joy and treasures that will never fade or spoil. God, too, lavishes gifts upon his children. 
In fact, I think we get that, that type of love from God. We know what it's like to lavish gifts upon our children, our family members, because that God does that for us. In fact, the best thing he ever gave us encompasses and envelops every single gift, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. When God gave us Jesus, we got everything. Everything. Everything you could ever want or hope for or dream of, it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to sum it up, I know you can come up with your own list. Think of more than I came up with. But to sum it up, we have a very, very good father. He's very loving. He's very steadfast in that love. But to make that mark even greater today, I want us to consider the father we had before because John brings that up in this passage. We had a father before God was our father. You know who that father was? The devil. The worst father imaginable. We had him as our father. All he did from sunup to sundown was abuse us over and over and over. Abuse, abuse, abuse. Lies, lies, lies. So all he did from sunup to sundown was try to hurt us, to harm us, to trip us up, to make us worse than we already were. And then Christ came into the scene. And we went from the devil to the God that we just described. We went from the worst possible situation to the best possible situation because of Jesus. I mean, doesn't that well up in you today and say, wow, thank you, Lord. I was in a really bad place with the devil as a father. I, I know some of you have had bad fathers. I know they exist. They're around, unfortunately. No father's worse than the devil. No one is worse than the devil. He always tries to hurt and to lie and to deceive and to punish and to abuse. In fact, the devil seems to trick us. He seems to say to you, I have fun and pleasure to offer you. I do. I have the best stuff. Come get it for me. And every time you do, he harms you. Every time you take something from the devil and you say, yeah, that sounds fun. I want to do that. All you find is hurt and pain. And if you follow it, death. Because that's what he wants. He wants to destroy you. In verse 1b, I guess you can call it, John says this, which sounds like an interesting footnote. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And you ever wonder this? Why, do, why does the world scratch their heads at Christians? Why? Why do they look at God's children and go, I don't get it. Why do you guys live for things that you cannot see? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. But it's honestly not that shocking, is it? They're doing that because they first did it to Jesus. Jesus, too, lived from another world, lived for another world, lived for things that people never knew what he was doing. And everybody scratched their heads at Jesus and says, why are you living that way? In fact, all they did from sunup to sundown for Jesus was try to hurt and to kill and to imprison him. And all Jesus was doing the entire time was seeking to love people. That's very confusing to me. But it's because we have the proper perspective. But the reason that people scratch their heads at Christians today is because they already did it to Jesus. And Jesus said if they did it to the master, they're going to do it to the student as well. So the world scratches our heads at us and go, I don't get it. Why do you guys live for better things, different things than the world does? And once again, Jesus can say to us, when that happens to us, I've been there. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be misunderstood and confused and even tormented because of that. And I think that's an interesting point John is making there. So that's number one. 
advantages and privileges to being God's children. Number two, which also comes up in the text, is this. What awaits God's children? What awaits God's children? John says the best part, the best part about being children of God hasn't even come yet. When Christ comes for the second and final time, those who have been following him will be made like him. In the twinkling of, a, of an eye, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. When Jesus comes for the second and final time, we are going to be made like Jesus. The best is yet to come. I don't know if you had any Christmas traditions growing up, but my family did. We had these stockings that we opened. You guys ever the stockings during Christmas? We did our stockings on Christmas Eve, and that was a cool, fun little tradition. They had like little gifts inside of it, you know, like little toothbrushes and little, little toys, things like that. And stockings was really fun, but you also knew when opening stockings that the best was yet to come, right? It was just kind of a sample of the gifts that were underneath the tree. And so you remember that as you open up stockings going, this is good, but I know it's going to be better tomorrow. And whatever we just talked about, what we get from God as his children, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Because when we see Jesus, consider this phrase, we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to see him as he is, and in the twinkling of an eye, we will be made like him. No more failings. No more weaknesses, no more insecurities or temptations or pain, no more grief, no more abuse from this world. No more sin. The best is yet to come, guys. We will be fully married to the Lord Jesus Christ and we will get all his strength, all his holiness, and all his riches forever. And I asked uh, Drew to read the passage from 1 Peter because it says, we are waiting this term called an inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable and cannot fade, cannot spoil, and God himself is guarding it for us right now. It is going to come to you, child of God. So whatever you get from God right now, it's a sampling. It's a sample of what we will one day get from God because of Jesus. And that's a good thing to know. When it says when we see him as he is, when we finally fully look at Jesus and see him as he is, you know what we will do for the first time ever? Completely and entirely fall in love with Christ and desire only him. Right now there's a tension, right? There's a struggle. I love Jesus, but I live in the world and I have a flesh. And that flesh is pulling against the spirit and saying, you should want these things. You should live for these things. And the spirit is saying, no, you should live for these things. You should want these things. But as soon as we see Jesus Christ, that's over. And all we will desire from that moment on is Christ and everything Christ offers. And we will fall completely and entirely head over heels for him. We will be forever content with who Jesus is and what we receive from him. Do you know what it's like to be completely content in life? Entirely content? You don't want anything else. You are perfectly content. That's what you and I are going to experience on the other side when we see Jesus Christ. Only Jesus forever? Yes, that's exactly what I want. I'm perfectly content. Because we'll have the proper perspective. We'll see Jesus as he is, and the only thing you will want from that moment on is to be like Jesus and God will grant that to us and say, There you go. Here it is. You're made like Jesus Christ. 
It's a gift, and you need to see this today as a true gift from God because the best is yet to come. And I hope you could find a lot of joy from that today. I really do, because the world thinks it has the best things to offer us. And it doesn't. It doesn't. God does. So from the text, you can see this, that the real children of God, the ones who receive God's special love and put their hope in Christ every single day, should be and are ready and willing to prepare themselves for the day by purifying themselves from sin and love for this world. If you and I have the proper perspective today to go, wow, the best really is yet to come. I already received such love and tender compassion from my father, but it's only a sampling. The best is yet to come. You know what you will do? You will use that as motivation to purify yourselves for the coming day of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because right now, and Scripture talks about this all the time, according to Scripture, in heaven, Christ is going to be the eternal husband, and we, his church, are going to be his bride. In fact, the marriage institution we have on earth is a reflection of that relationship. So you could say, well, that's kind of weird. You know, Jesus is going to be the man and we're going to be the woman. You're thinking on earthly terms if you think that way. You have to think of this marriage institution we have on earth as a reflection of the relationship we're going to have with Jesus someday. He is going to be the eternal husband, the bridegroom, it calls him, and his church is going to be the bride. And so you know what the bride should be doing at this moment? Preparing herself. Getting ready for the wedding ceremony. A little over nine years ago, I got married to Janine. And this is documented. Janine prepared herself. There are pictures of her getting, not, not, not weirdly, but getting dressed, getting her makeup on, getting her shoes ready, getting prepared for the day, trying to look perfect, as perfect as she can, for me, her bridegroom. And that's an overwhelming thing to know. But the bride, the church, is supposed to be doing that now. We are now in the preparing phase. If you understand that you're in Christ, he is coming back, and one day there's going to be a wonderful, glorious ceremony where the church is brought to Christ and they are in union forever, the church has a goal now, and that goal is to prepare themselves, to get ready. Because you have to, wrong perspective. Because you get to. Because you get to. Because you get to marry the Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And like I said before, everything that then belongs to Jesus Christ will now be yours. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? Everything that belongs to Jesus, like this happened when Janine married me, everything that belongs to me, which, wow, really was not a lot. But when Janine married me, everything I own, good and bad, now belongs to Janine. My school debt. Thanks, Janine. There you go. Enjoy that. Um, but think about this. When we marry the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that he has and gets, which would blow your mind, is also going to be ours. And so John says, we should prepare ourselves for the coming day. We should get ready. We should act as if we know that's going to happen and purify ourselves from sin and for love from this world, and say, the time is brief, I don't have long, the Lord Jesus is coming back, it's now time to get ready. And don't do it because you have to, do it because you get to. Do you honestly want to stand before the Lord and have no preparation to just like roll out of bed and say, here you go, Lord, I hope you enjoy this? No. But to say, Lord, this is what you're deserving of. 
This is what you deserve. You deserve a church who prepares themselves and who is holy and who loves you. Doesn't every bride and bridegroom deserve that? Someone who loves them and cherishes them and prepares themselves to get married? Jesus, much more so. So John says this is what you and I should be doing. He says at the end of chapter, excuse me, verse 3 in chapter 3, everyone who thus hopes in him, in Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. Gets ready. Gets ready for the wedding ceremony that we will one day have with the bridegroom. Number three, John brings up this test, which he honestly spends the most time on in this passage. It's from verses 4 to 10. The test for who our Father is. Because John is all about not letting anyone be confused. If you read 1 John, you're, you, there's no confusion whatsoever. You understand exactly where he's coming from, exactly what he's saying, exactly what he wants to have happened. And so this is the exact same thing today. He wants us to know for sure today that we have God as our Father. He doesn't want anybody going, I think so, yeah, I guess. I hope so. That's not good enough. John wants us to know, and so he's going to give us a test. And this isn't your usual test, okay? When I, went, when I took tests in college, I would <clears throat> unfortunately cram five or ten minutes right before it, you know, expecting to learn the knowledge, to produce the knowledge, and then forget the knowledge <laughs> right after I produced it. This test is not about knowledge. It's not. According to the text, this test is about practice. What you practice. This test is to make sure that you and I belong to the good father and not still the evil father, the devil. So this test is very simple, yet it's incredibly important, and it comes down to what we practice. John uses that word over and over and over. I looked up the word practice. I don't think I would have to, you guys would be confused by that word, but I wanted to look it up and just see what it meant. The word practice, according to the definition of it, says to carry out or perform habitually and regularly. That's what the word practice means. So John wants us to figure out today, what do you and I carry out and perform habitually and regularly? See, back in the day, I was calling myself a Christian around early 20s, but if you looked at my life, I wouldn't have been a Christian by my practices. I would have been a sports-ian fan. <laughs> by my practices, because that's all I practiced. That's what I cared about. I spent time doing it. I thought about it. I watched it. I talked about it. I loved it from sunup to sundown. I didn't think about Christ or doing things that Christ loved. I thought about sports. So if you tested me based on my practices, not my knowledge, I would have failed. And that's what John is going to talk about today, is what do you and I practice, because it will authenticate who we are. It will prove who we are. John says, this is really hard to hear, but if we practice sin, we also practice something called lawlessness. Lawlessness. Think about the word lawlessness, which is literally living as if there is no law. So if I'm going 75 miles per hour on a 55-mile road and the cop pulled me over, he could say to me, Todd, maybe he doesn't know my name, sir, you're driving lawlessly. You're driving as if there is no law, as if there's no posted speed limit. And there is a posted speed limit. And so when we practice sin, we're living as if there is no law. And we must remember from our past lessons, there is a law. There's an eternal 
law of love that God and Christ has given to his people. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. When we talked about this a couple weeks ago, what that looks like, it's purposeful, it's on the offense, it's intentional, it's edifying. To live your life for God and for other people is God's law. So when you and I practice sin, John says we're lawless. Think of the old westerns, right, where there was like no law, you know, and everybody did whatever they wanted. There were shootouts in the street. That's kind of how the world is today. Lawless. They're acting as if God does not have an eternal law, and he does. And we are guided by that law. Therefore, practicing disobedience or neglect of the eternal law is the greatest proof that you and I are not children of God like we think we are. If you and I practice sin, which means we live lawlessly, it is proof that we are not God's children, or can be proof. Because of looking at it from the other angle, obedience is righteousness. And we must do what God commands us to do. John says this too in the text. He says, in, therefore, uh, look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Listen to this. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So according to that text, the Lord Jesus left his throne in heaven to come and do two primary things for you and I. Number one, the most obvious, the most profound part of the gospel is he died to make a payment for the sins of his people so that you and I might find what's called redemption, salvation, reconciliation, restoration, regeneration. There's tons of words in scripture. Justification for the same thing. And Jesus made the payment to make that possible. That's the first thing he did. But that's not all he did. The second most profound thing he did is he came to destroy the works of the devil. Do you know that? It says it right in the text. He came to destroy the works of the devil and allow his people to walk in a completely different fashion than they did before. Entirely different. In fact, number two authenticates the genuineness of number one. If you're saying today, I am redeemed, I am a Christ follower, I have been saved, and you practice lawlessness, it makes entirely no sense. Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to remove those chains of sin and death so that you and I could once again, for the first time ever, live righteously. Which is the complete polar opposite of lawlessly. Because righteousness is living by God's law. In fact, that's the way I would describe righteousness. Obedience to God's law. Because righteousness, you could define it your own way and go, I think I am righteous. I am pretty righteous. But the way you know if you're righteous is by looking at the commandments and then looking at your life and see if they match. Generally, as a practice. And we're going to keep bringing up that word practice because it's really important. So Christ single-handedly destroyed the power of the devil on the cross can I have you write down one more passage of scripture? Titus 2, 11 to 14. Titus 2, 11 to 14 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live upright, self-controlled, and godly in this present age. Do you guys know that? Do you guys believe that? Jesus came with the grace that shatters the chains of sin and says, walk new, walk upright, walk holy, practice righteousness now. And we can. In fact, the devil, your old father, should be rebelled against. You should rebel against your old father, the devil, because he is trying to tell you today he owns you and you can no longer walk in righteousness. He owns you. The best you're going to be is a little bit better than you were before and you need to listen to scripture today. Say, no, wrong. I have a new father. I have a new heart. I have new themes and practices. I can live upright and godly in this present age. Because the devil is no longer your father. He no longer has reign and rule of your life. You know who does now? The Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father. So John says we must have the proof, which is the polar opposite of lawlessness, which is the habits of practicing righteousness. If you want to know that you actually belong to God as a child, which we have to pass this test today, we have to know this today, John says we must practice righteousness. And then he says something really mind-blowing. He says if we practice righteousness, we are actually the same degree of righteous as Christ is. Isn't that shocking and stunning to think about? That if we practice righteousness, we are as righteous as he is righteous. Look at that verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. How does that make any sense? So when I practice righteousness, even if I slip and fall along the way, I'm as righteous as Christ is righteous? Yes. And we have to explain that today. I know that's a little confusing. John says that if we practice righteousness, we are as righteous as Jesus is. Which again, remember the word practice means to carry out, perform, habitually, and regularly. Obedience. Righteousness. So we need to have a little doctrinal lesson for us this morning. So we're not confused. If we practice righteousness, even if we slip and fall along the way, which this is not a license to slip and fall, but it's honest. If you and I practice righteousness, we are perfectly righteous. How? How is that possible? How is it possible if I practice something and I slip and I don't do it perfectly, God considers me perfectly righteous? You know why that is? Because God lowers the bar for his children? No, he does not. Cannot and he will not because he wouldn't be just and he wouldn't be God then. What it means is that if you and I practice righteousness, we have the proof of Christ's righteousness upon our account. Get, do you understand that? If you and I practice righteousness, it, it is the proof that we already have Christ's righteousness upon our account. So here's a little, I'm going to do a little equation for us to help us understand that. I think it's on the next screen. Practicing righteousness equates being in Christ. Okay, it's not how you get to Christ. You get to Christ by turning to him by faith. So I want to be very clear on that. But practicing righteousness equates being in Christ. Okay? Next, being in Christ equates being perfectly righteous. Do you see the equation there? So that's how you get from practicing righteousness to perfectly righteous. Who's the common denominator? Jesus. 
He is the one who's perfectly righteous. He is the one who gave his perfect righteousness to sinners when they trust in him. But the way that we authenticate that we are perfectly righteous is by practicing righteousness. Does that make sense? Does everyone understand that? So what I'm not saying today is the way that you become righteous is live righteously. No, it authenticates that you already have been made righteous by Christ. So if you want to become righteous today, go to Jesus. Go to the fountain of pure righteousness, and he will wipe away all your sins as far as the east is from the west. Excuse me. And then you and I must do something very profound. Practice righteousness as proof and authentication that we are in Christ. But you need to understand this today, that Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Right? Just like the song says. I don't get credit for that. I don't get credit for being perfectly righteous. There's none of us who can take credit for that. The only one who can take credit for that is Jesus because he was and is perfectly righteous. And he, on the cross, gave us that payment. So we can stand before God, like we talked about two weeks ago, in perfect confidence to say, I'm perfectly righteous because of Christ. Because he paid my debt. And he gave me his righteousness. And the way that you and I know that that's a reality today is that you can practice righteousness. Because if you can practice righteousness, and I can practice righteousness today, it's proof that we have been made new and clean by God. And if you can't practice righteousness today, that's also proof. You haven't been made clean yet. You need to go to Jesus today. And we're going to come back to that. So to clarify one more time, you and I can never achieve our own righteousness having once been soiled by sin. It's an impossibility. That's the reason Jesus came. Because you and I could not do anything about our sinful state. We had to have divine help. We had to have a perfect, spotless lamb to die for us. And we did, Jesus. But Jesus is sufficient to make us perfectly righteous by his own death and resurrection. And the way that you and I know that we have the payment on our account, the way that you can check your bank statement is by practicing practical righteousness. It's not how you gain perfect righteousness, it's how you authenticate it. Does that make sense? Once again, how you authenticate that you are perfectly righteous already in God's eyes. And remember what practice means, to do it regularly and habitually and to obey the commandments of love. That's what it means to practice righteousness, to get up every single day and do exactly as God has taught you to do. And when you can and when you do, assurance of salvation and of being God's child flows into your soul and says, you are mine and the best is yet to come. Practice righteousness. Also, according to the text, there's only two options for a spiritual father, the devil or God. There's no third option. You either have the devil as your father or you have God as your father. And they are polar opposites with how they treat us, obviously. The devil only lies and only abuses. He only wants our ultimate destruction. God on the complete opposite spectrum loves us, protects us, cherishes, measures his love by sending his only begotten son into the world to die for us and defeat the devil so he can grant us eternal life. 
So the choice of which father to follow is pretty obvious, isn't it? You want the one who abuses and lies and wants your ultimate destruction, or do you want the one who loves and cherishes you and sends his son for you so you might have eternal life? It's obvious, right? Obviously, you want the good, loving father. I hope you do today. Because he is the one who shows us boundless love. You can't measure God's love. It's immeasurable. But it is true that practicing righteousness is harder. I understand that today, and so does John. Practicing righteousness is harder than practicing lawlessness. Insert a duh here. (laughs) Duh. It's obviously harder to walk in obedience. Because when you walk in obedience, you go against the flow of the world. And that's always much harder to do. The world is going this way, and you've got to go this way. That's going to be hard. It is. Because it means you can't spend your days in vain pleasures like the world does. You've got to live for better things, greater things, things that last. But God's way is good and full of lasting joy and allows you and I to be protected from everything bad, which means going against the flow is good. It's what you want, if you understand this right. You want that path because that means God is watching out for you. Versus the other path, live for the vain pleasures of the world and just have a lot of friends and a lot of fun, that's the devil's path. It's the devil's path. And his way is paved with immediate gratifications, but he also steals from you along the way every single day. And the end of that path is really scary. Eternal damnation. And the devil knows it. And that's what he's giving you today. Fun, pleasure, gratifications, friends, more than you could ever want and hope for. But it leads to hell. Versus the other side, against the grain. Holiness, loving, upright, godly, and it leads to eternal life. So let's look at another equation here because John loves these equations. Um, God. God the Father equals practicing righteousness. If you follow God and you have God as your, as, your, as your dad, as your father today, you must spend your life practicing righteousness. But the end of that leads to eternal life. And then you have the devil on the other side. The devil can also be your father, but he is all about practicing lawlessness, living in sin, and living in pleasures of this world. And his end is eternal damnation. So which path do you want? Which father do you want? The one that says, hey, live right, live holy, live loving now, and I will lavish gifts on you for the rest of eternity. Or the one that says, live for fun and sin now, and yeah, you'll die for the rest of eternity. You'll be damned. But you'll have fun along the way. Which one do you want? Which one do I want today? Obviously, it should be very clear. I hope it's very clear to you today. So to recap, let's recap very quickly here because we're over our time. Being a child of God is the sweetest gift anyone could ever receive, and it's free, and I need to make that very clear to you today. If you want to be a child of God, all you need to do is go to Jesus Christ and say, cleanse me, heal me, save me, and you're a child of God, thanks to his work on the cross. So you can receive it today, even if you have not up to this point. You can receive free pardon and be adopted into God's family for all of eternity. That's number one. Number two, even though we have already received so much from God, like we said before, we still have so much more to look forward to, including the best thing of all, being made like Jesus. And I hope I put forward how incredible that will be to be made like Jesus Christ.
Number three, we once again need the proof of our authenticity as a Christ follower. And that proof is the practicing of righteousness, or how I term it, obedience to God's law of love. Without that proof, we cannot know that we belong to God, and we most likely still belong to the devil. So check your practices today. Check your themes. Check your habits today, because it's the test. It's the proof. And if you fail it, there's still hope. You can come to Jesus today. I give you a little questionnaire. I'm going to skip over the application that's on the screen. I want you to look at the questionnaire. I do give you homework this week, so deal with it. Um, This homework is for you, okay? It's not to share. It's not to hand in. It's not so I can judge you. This is for you to know before God, okay? And I want you to answer those questions today because it will reveal to you what you are, and that's the whole point of today so that you and I can either stay serving the right God and Father or get off that evil path and get on the right path for the first time. This is what he says in 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. Re-listen to what John says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are children, God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We have been loved to love God through Christ. Don't just receive God's love. Send it back. Love God as well. God is so loving and worthy of our love for him. that we need to remember that God is worthy and, and Christ is worthy and remember what they've done in order to make us holy today and spotless today. Number three is don't love the Lord as a chore. Love him as a privilege. It's a privilege to serve God. It's a privilege to be God's child. Think about that today. You are God's child if you're in Christ. He washes out for you today. And lastly, Jesus made all of this possible, meaning he too is worthy of everything we have. And again, fill out that questionnaire and answer those questions before God. And I want to do one last thing before we pray here. I don't usually do this, but I want to give an invitation today. I want If the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart today through this text, and you don't know if you're God's, you don't know if you've turned to Christ, you don't know if you have the right practices, I don't want you leaving here confused. I don't want you leaving here with questions. Myself and our three deacons, Paul, Drew, and Dan, have offered to stay behind so you can come and talk and pray with us if you want to okay i want you to come up in full confidence not saying they're going to judge me they're going to think wicked of me no we're here to help we're here to help you so we're going to pray right now and i just ask that you would look inward to your soul today and ask what needs to happen okay and if you need help i want you to seek me out and seek the deacons out so that you can have the proof and confidence that you are christ's let's pray Father God, thank you so much for who you are. We will never have enough time to thank you. But we thank you now. We praise you for Christ Jesus. I do pray for those in the room today that you'd speak to their souls. I remember when you spoke to mine and how profound that was. So I pray that you'd speak to the souls in this room. And if there's someone that needs to come and say, I do not follow Christ. I do not know if I practice the right things. Speak to them today, Father, and help them seek us out. But most of all, help them go directly to Jesus Christ, the agent of salvation, the healing, cleansing fountain, the one who can make us perfectly righteous. 
We praise you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.